Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT podcast. Your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. Today, part two of our series on neurobiology and couples. We're joined by a great guest, literally wrote the book on the neurobiological treatment of couples, Stan Tatkin. Stan's a teacher, couples therapist, researcher, and the innovator of the psychobiological approach to couples therapy, known as PACT. He's written dozens of academic articles, six best-selling books, translated into four languages, and more than 1.7 million people have found Stan's TED Talk. Stan and his wife, Tracy, created the PACT Institute in 2010 to train couples therapists to successfully integrate a psychobiological approach in their clinical practice. Through the PACT Institute, Stan has trained thousands of therapists around the world and is a go-to source for couples. He helps them create healthy attachments, secure functioning relationships based on fairness, justice, and sensitivity. In addition to his work based out of Calabasas, California, Stan and Tracy lead couples retreats based on their Wired for Love curriculum, both online and in person. Stan's an assistant clinical professor at the UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine, Department of Family Medicine, He's on the board of directors of Lifespan Learning Institute and serves as a founding member on Relationships First. That is a nonprofit organization founded by Harville Hendricks and Helen Hunt. He's a former president of the California Association for Marriage and Family Therapy, Ventura County Chapter. He's trained in adult attachment, facial action coding system, and the strange situation. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. I learned so much. Imagine a world where in-office therapy went beyond the session and included a journey where clients' assessments, automated data-driven content, and more could be used as tools to help guide clients. Our friends at Noble are changing the way therapists do therapy. With Noble, earn passive income while offering clients a more engaging experience. Clients pay a monthly fee for Noble and gain access to between-session support through automated therapist-created roadmaps, progress assessments, and in-app messaging. Noble handles the billing for you, so you don't have to worry. Join for free at www.noble.health. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. I am really excited to be joined by Dr. Stan Tatkin today, and we are going to talk not only about his model, PACT, which is the psychobiological approach to couples therapy, But Stan is a guy that has really spent his life working 
with couples and is very knowledgeable and presents information in a way, just like our listeners like, that is very digestible both to consumers, that would be your clients, the couples, and to couples therapists. So you listen to the show, Stan, the first question we want to know about you, how, how did you get interested in working with couples to start with? That's interesting because when I was a trainee and an intern, the first experience I ever had with a couple was horrifying. I was I was behind a two-way mirror and my my friends, colleagues and supervisors were on the other side. And I, I just felt this was the couple from hell. They seemed to be a young George and Martha, you know, from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And they just ate me alive. So after that, I was afraid of couples. I, I didn't ever think I would be a couple therapist. I went on through being a group psychotherapist and working inpatient and then working with personality disorders. I started to focus on that. And then I started to focus on prevention, working with caregivers and their infants using videotape. And then I went into couples. I went into couples for a couple of reasons. One, I went through divorce myself. And that was devastating. And I was working through that. At the same time, I was teaching and working. I was studying the brain at this time with my then mentor, Alan Shore. And I was interested in, like I said, working to prevent personality disorders and uh, and mental illness by starting with the very young. And I shifted over to adult pair bonding because I believed that there was a one-to-one, almost a one-to-one similarity ratio between the earliest secure attachment system between caregiver and infant and adult secure attachment, even though there's a difference in symmetry. And plus I could get couples to come in. It was very hard to get mothers and their infants to come in or fathers and their infants. So it took off. I loved it. I found that the, the data matched up with what I had been learning and studying and studying babies. The same basically goes for adult romantic attachment partners, except for the symmetry issue, which is which is significant. But other elements remain the same. And so I started that as my research and never looked back. Is there anything better than attachment theory as a complement to couples therapy? It's like peanut butter and jelly, uh, bread and butter. It, they go together and it's almost universally accepted in how somebody's infant attachment affects their adult relationships. So that is an interesting pathway in. And much like your story, many of our listeners are young and they have, you know, you have to get a certain number of couples under your belt before you feel comfortable doing it. But many times we have our uh, most scary or experiences that make us apprehensive earlier in our training, but you did not give up. The other thing besides attachment theory really influencing couples therapy in the last 20 years is certainly neurobiological effects. And it's it's been a component that's been added to many established models of couples therapy. And certainly it's at the heart of PACT. What we like to do is therapists and couples therapists, especially psychoeducate our couples. I'm curious what you think is essential neurobiological psychoeducation that every couples therapist should know. Well, I'm going to just take it a step back for a moment and say that that psychobiology, which is basically the study or of the mind in development from infant brain development throughout the lifespan, that that is my preferred area and uh, that involves neurobiology. So psychobiology is multiple 
pronged. It's in, in my world, it's not only attachment, which could also be personality theory, object relations, but also developmental neuroscience and arousal regulation theory. So we put a lot of emphasis on the autonomic nervous system. Uh, and again, the developmental capacity of somebody on in the social emotional range stemming from the first 18 months of life which is the most you know experience dependent period for the right brain and that's when systems are being set up so we're looking at social emotional acuity the ability to read faces interoceptive cues voices to be able to manage one's body uh, one's own nervous system to stay regulated uh, to be able to tolerate frustration, impulse control, and so on. All of those factors really go into psychobiology. And so I find it most robust, put it that way. The neurobiology part, I think, is important for every therapist now to know. At the time I was learning it, very few were actually engaged in learning about the brain, in our field at least. And now it's it's ubiquitous. People are getting more and more familiar. But I think it's, it's one of those areas that enhances our love of people and our understanding of our own mind. You know, many of us are involved in mindfulness practice, insight meditation. This is another way of understanding one's own mind and the workings of one, one's own brain and nervous system. I think it's really good for oneself, but it also adds to our fund of knowledge and understanding the people in front of us. And the more we can understand about the hardware, the structure and function of the brain, the neuroendocrine system, and anything else we can about the human animal, I think just makes the work more fun. As far as what people need to know or therapists, do you think essential psychoeducation around the psychobiology of couples? What would you say is essential for every couple's therapist to be able to educate their clients on? I don't think anybody could go wrong studying babies and their career. I think if you have the time to do a program where you can study babies, study infants, study the strange situation. I think in particular, the Minnesota group, the Sroofs, Alan and, and June Sroof, or the, the AAI, which is later with Mary Main and uh, Eric Hesse. Those are, uh, I think, essentials. Uh, but also, if you can read anybody, uh, my favorite man crush on the planet is Robert Sapolsky, a primatologist who's also a neurobiology teacher up at Stanford. I think understanding the brain areas, their functions, what works together in terms of when we see certain disorders, what might not be working well in terms of integration in the brain, what might be happening that we understand with uh, neurobiological deficits, such as being on the spectrum or having things like prosopagnosia, which is the inability to read faces more common than we think, or the inability to perhaps read emotion, affect blindness, alexithymia, all of these things that we see in clinic are also uh, understandable by reading the literature, looking at the data in terms of brain scans and how the brain functions but also developmentally. Yes, and I think a lot of what we do as couples therapists is try to educate our clients on what's going on with them when they become triggered, flooded, whatever word you want to use when they're with their partners. And there is sometimes a debate in the field depending on what your preferred model of couples therapy is, is should individuals be focused on soothing themselves and kind of the couples therapy we're talking about here today, or should partners 
learn to soothe each other. I'm interested in where you fall in on that debate. And then what are a few of your go-tos for using with couples and your packed approach that helps them emotionally regulate to really create connection and do the work? So I would say both, of course. If we divide regulation strategies into four different strategies, the earliest probably as infants is auto-regulation, and that continues throughout the lifespan. So auto-regulation is self-soothing, self-stimulation without interpersonal interaction, without another person. And we do that throughout our lifespan, reading a book, watching a movie, Things like that are examples of auto-regulation. It's a slightly dissociative, hyper-focused state that is energy-conserved because it doesn't involve interpersonal stress. Interpersonal stress pointing to the most difficult thing on the planet, which is another (laughs) human being. And then there's self-regulation, and self-regulation doesn't come online till around 10, 12 months with the metabolizing of the prefrontal bundle, notably the right orbital frontal. And that's when we when we begin to borrow our caregiver's capacity to self-regulate. That's a frontal function of limiting and restriction in the frontal lobes, but it's also in the back of the brain with the development of the dorsomotor vagus nerve and the ventral vagus nerve. This is Porges's work. All of this having to do with being able to hold in weight. And then there is external regulation, which is there from birth, and that is the caregiver to the infant. It's in one direction only. We're doing that now as I'm talking. I'm externally regulating the audience by just talking. And then there's interactive regulation or co-regulation or mutual regulation. And that's also there shortly after birth where the uh, infant and caregiver are going back and forth. Uh, This is uh, like Melanie Klein's projection, introjection process of communication and learning, where you cannot tell who is leading, who's following. That's interactive regulation. And that's what we're really built for. In my work and in studying the nervous system, I have come to realize, I came to realize that we are better in couples. We are better at interactive regulation. It's more efficient and it is more in tune with the way our brain operates, especially uh, face-to-face and skin-to-skin, eye-to-eye, than self-regulation. Self-regulation has to be there in order to stay related, to stay within social ga- engagement. But, but self-regulation in and of itself is not necessarily going to save your relationship. The ability for a couple to co-manage distress states, co-manage excitement states is really essential. That is a natural state that we get into when we're relaxed and we feel safe. So for the person who has a hard time with self-regulation, there are lots of techniques. There is insight meditation, there's breathing, there's talking out loud while holding one's own chest and saying aloud the thoughts that are streaming, the feelings uh, and emotions that are streaming. Those are self-regulation techniques. But uh, interactive regulation is really the name of the game when it comes to couples work. We turn them face to face and eye to eye and sometimes have them stay quiet for several minutes and watch and see how they handle that as a stress test and usually there's an initial spike in arousal with eye contact and then it levels out into something we might think of as quiet love it's kind of a trance more parasympathetic than sympathetic and people are relaxed and they're not feeling the pain that they would ordinarily feel when the therapist pokes around and that, I find, is a preferred state to work with couples. Yeah, and, and when you can do that 
and have them in that state, it promotes connection, understanding, intimacy, closeness, all those things. Let me give you a scenario that is very familiar to you and our listeners. The couple, and which is why couples therapy is inherently, I think, more challenging. There's many more choice points, many more things to read, both verbally and non-verbally in a session. But the couple comes in and they're interacting and you're seeing their cycle in front of you. They have gone from flooded, clearly the opposite of regulated, and they are going at it right in front of you. And you realize if you cannot get a handle on this as a therapist, you are powerless and the whole rest of your 50 minutes will be down the drain. So tell us how you work with a couple when they are escalating right in front of you in this interactive way of soothing as you're describing. There are lots of ways to work with couples that are escalating if they are considered high arousal. These are people who have a hard time with breaking their forward acceleration. Then we have techniques such as if you can't beat them, join them. Therapists matches their volume and their tone and begins to intrude on what what we are calling procedural memory, that's the automatic body memory, by using words that are friendly, uh, words that are complimentary or apologetic, as a way to infiltrate that state, because we're dealing with state of mind here. Uh, I should say that when we're, when we're working implicitly with implicit systems in couples, we have to understand that it's not really as much on the digital level, the, the speaking level, that we're going to regulate people. It's going to be on the implicit level with our voice, our body, our face, our movements and gestures and so on, and also positions. So there are lots of ways to regulate people when they get dysregulated. Changing position is one down and dirty way to do. If you and your partner are getting uh, heated, just change your position, move to a different location, and that resets you right away. Changing your position vis-a-vis -vis the other person also will do it. There are other ways to shift somebody out of a threat state, which is what dysregulation really is. I'm feeling threatened and I am picking up threat cues in the environment, making lots of errors in so doing because I am a survival animal, as we all are, and it's safety first and love uh, a distant second when I'm in that, uh, in the grips of, of that kind of stress and distress. And so there are gestural cues that are uh, unequivocally friendly that people can learn to do to disconnect that threat circuit immediately and return the person back to a place where they can think again. The problem is when we activate a hypothalamic system, that is fight or flight, we are already engaged in a way that the brain changes. All the blood seems to be going to the striated muscles and we lack the blood and glucose, oxygen and glucose uh, that are necessary to drive air correcting parts of the brain. And so slowing people down, changing their position, having somebody do a gesture that is absolutely friendly, silly, out of the ordinary, unexpected. These are ways that we can shift somebody's state. Shifting their state changes their memory and that also alters their perception immediately. So we need real quick ways, all human beings, when another person is starting to feel threatened to return that person to safety as quickly as possible so they can actually be an audience member again. Do you find practicing these techniques with couples in times of calm when they are safe and secure helps them prepare for when they get triggered and go into their cycle? Or is it more helpful to teach couples in the midst of their conflict and of their heated moment. 
actually, it's the latter. We, I, tell, I tell my couples, uh, I'm going to be putting them under pressure, under stress. I'm going to be a troublemaker because it's under stress that uh, human beings do bad things, right? When we're feeling good, we're fine. As soon as we feel the least bit of stress, then we change and we start to become a little less gracious, a little less understanding. We have a hard time putting ourselves in the other person's shoes. We become more jealous of our interests and basically we become adversarial. So, uh, <laughs> and so it's under stress that partners can learn and train to work interactively, to be friendly, to be able to get something accomplished, to focus on a third thing, which is the problem, not each other, and to uh, learn how the mind works. You know, we're warlike animals, human primates, warlike animals, aggressive, self-centered, opportunistic, uh, fickle, moody, always comparing and contrasting to uh, something and we feel disappointed, always aware of what's missing, xenophobic, racist, right? These are all the things that we know are part and parcel of being a human primate. Therefore, a lot of this is learning not just about each other, but all human beings. This is the human condition uh, that we're dealing with in love relationships, in all relationships. And so we're, we're basically training people under stress and duress to work collaboratively and cooperatively with each other. As you can tell, our listeners... This is not a model where you are sitting back on the other side of the couch. This is a very active model where you are in the couple's face, quite literally moving them around, helping them experience each other in a different way when they are in these states of distress. How do you set up for a couple that maybe doesn't expect this from couples therapy? What is the gateway in for getting permission and getting them to buy into how the therapy is structured? I have a bit of of an advantage that you know people come people, to you because you're the people expert, come to yeah. me, <laughs> right? They know they know something about me, but I will explain it to them in the uh, in our introduction in the first session, and so they know what they're getting into. And I also have them read some things that I've written, and also prepare them for how I think. Today, I'm very structurally oriented in terms of a couple. This is where the symmetry comes in. They are a two-person psychological system of free, autonomous adults coming together based on terms and conditions. And they are the architects of this relationship. I am not. They decide what their ethics are, their, uh, what, how they're going to run the business, how they're going to uh, deal with long-term downstream effects, uh, how they're going to plan for the future, how they're going to set up shop. Then it's a matter of setting them up. Uh, if I'm in the office, then there we're all in chairs with wheels. We have props all around and video cameras. And we use video, digital video, with their permission, as a way of providing f- immediate feedback if necessary, because under stress, people can't see what they're actually doing. Real time is too fast. We're just too automatic. And so this gives them sort of a play-by-play way of, of discovering how their face is looking, how their gestures might be leading to the other person feeling threatened, and so on. But we also do a lot of staging, bedroom scenes, uh, lover's poses, uh, other things that put them into uh, stressful situations that are day-to-day common positions and movements and so on. So we can also 
work through some of their past issues with the with original figures in their family of origin and so on. So this is very experiential, very playful, very active work that we do with couples. So much of the field of couple and family therapy and what is unique in our tradition of training and live supervision is recording our work and it's so helpful for therapists it makes complete sense it'd be a parallel process or isomorphic to have the couple watch themselves so that is really part of getting the buy-in because i imagine some of these couples are amazed i don't do that until they see themselves do it and you talk a lot about these micro expressions and other details of interactions that are maybe nearly imperceptible on the surface but are so important in this dance that couples do I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about that and when you are having couples watch their tape back, what do you have them code for? What do you have them look at? And what are the biggest surprises that they tell you they find after watching themselves on video? Well, I'll take the last part first, that videos are extremely provocative. We're dealing with memory issues. And when people are watching themselves, they can get activated. So I make sure that they watch the video of a small segment of something I'm trying to show them right after the activity. So we have use of their working and short-term memory. Otherwise, they'll see it completely differently. And also, I use a lot of frame-by-frame, frame, showing frame-by-frame frame how the face is moving, how the gesture is moving, what the other person did when they said this word or this phrase, so that I'm in control of the data. Otherwise, it would be uh, it, it would uh, cause havoc, I think, to just sit and watch themselves without direction. So that's that part. And most people are really interested in what they're doing. And then when we run it through again, have them do the same exercise, they always do better. This makes them self-conscious in a good way. And they start to realize that they're contributing to a problem that affects them uh, as well as their partner and they want to do better. So that's where it's very, very useful. Otherwise, I don't play back. Now, video was used also and still is used as a way for me to check my work and to check how I'm doing and to find all the errors I'm making in any given session. There's no session without error. And then I get to see my face. I used to study what my face was doing and how my gestures were impacting couples. And so it's a great learning tool. It's a great forensic tool to look back and to see uh, what we missed and what we got wrong. But this also led to my fascination with deception. So let me go back. Many years ago, I started to focus on the face. I became really interested in it, and I studied Ekman's facial action coding system. And I just could not stop my my infatuation obsession with the face and then with body movements. And what happens when we start to be interested in things like this, our empathy scores actually go up. Alan Alda did a research project where he proved, and this has been proven otherwise before this, that when we really look at details on the face and we study people, not scrutinize, but just because we're interested, right? We're curious. Our empathy scores go up. The face is our social organ, and um, by studying it, we can really see the autonomic nervous system in action and 
And so it's it's a great tool just a, as a human being, but it's really wonderful and fun as a therapist. So once you see things, you can't unsee them. And once you really start to look at the smallest details, like a video camera would pick up, never as good, but close, you can start to pick up instantly shifts and changes on the face and the body and the voice. And that uh, becomes the, the sort of the gateway into the implicit world, into the truthful world. The body doesn't lie, words do. And so this becomes a, a way into really studying the animals that we're with and to have them study each other and learn about each other in the same way that we are, fascinated with details, looking for novelty in the ordinary. And this is where I think uh, the work really takes off. Tenio is AAMFT's online education platform and provides clinical training with a focus on systems and relational therapies. Tenio courses are all online and can be accessed anywhere in the world. Courses can be started, paused, and completed at any time to accommodate busy mental health professionals' schedules. Tenio courses are approved by many state regulatory boards to provide continuing education credit hours and cover such diverse topics as marketing your practice, elder care, working with LGBTQ clients, and ethics. Explore the course catalog at www.aamft.org forward slash learning and use code TENEO10 for 10% off your purchase. Let me give you another scenario. This is a couple, they don't make eye contact with each other. They have a hard time making eye contact with the therapist and certainly with each other, especially when they're fighting. So, so much of this work is creating this connection, being able to pick up on these micro expressions. How do you work with a couple for whatever reason that will not look at each other, which is fundamental to doing this work? Again, everything we're doing is step-by-step. In PACT, we're interested in secure functioning as the end goal. Secure functioning is a two-person psychological system that's based on shared power, shared authority, have a shared purpose for their relationship, not based on love, not based on attraction, but based on survival, care for each other. Uh, This is a couple that operates fully collaboratively, cooperatively under principles of fairness and justice and sensitivity. Okay, that's secure functioning. Now, there's a lot of reasons why people would not want to make eye contact, and we'd have to first find out why. So it's, you know, this is not a fascist uh, approach where people have to make eye contact, but anything that somebody cannot do or is resisting doing that we would consider ordinarily engaged, then we're curious, why? What is behind this? Is this this a deficit? Is this a, a threat response? Is this trauma? Is this fear of being exposed? Is this anger, hatred, dislike? We don't know until we find out. So it it becomes a a place to investigate and discover. But why do we make eye contact and why is it important? Well, uh, we fall in love through the eyes. Vision is our mainstay when it comes to sensory input. Uh, We verify everything through the visual field. And since we are making mistakes all the time with our communication, mostly misunderstanding each other much of the time, we have to cross-correct our our information visually. So, And that has to be dead on because we're practically blind on the sides of our eyes. So there's a tactical reason 
Also, if I'm talking to you, it is unwise for me to take my eyes off of you, my audience, because I cannot adjust for how you are reacting to my every word and movement. That could be fatal in terms of us going to war, going into a fight. Right? because I didn't watch. I couldn't adjust. That's co-regulation, by the way. So I will tell people that it puts you at a disadvantage to drop your eyes because you don't know whether you've lost your audience. And if you've lost your audience, then you're already in trouble. And so is your partner. So it is a tactical, not personal reason to keep your eyes on your ball because these two people are basically on a tight wire together. They have to watch each other. If one of them falls, they both fall. And that's, again, strategic and tactical. But it is also the way we feel uh, engaged and existentially unalone through the eyes. And it is also where we start to be able to be influenced by the other person if we feel safe. And that's what partnership is, the ability to influence one another so we can get things accomplished. Otherwise, we can't. If you're coaching these couples on how to co-regulate, if both members become flooded and they begin a repair after a fight, sometimes it takes longer, many times, for one partner to get back to that spot where you can create this safety and connection we've been talking about than the other. How do you work with couples that have different timelines and abilities to soothe? There are certain people who have a harder time recovering than others in the attachment realm People in the clinging side tend to have a, a slower uh, recovery rate than people in the distancing side of the spectrum, although it could be reversed uh, for some. And a lot of this has to do with the other partner. In this work, because we're looking at interactive regulation over self-regulation, we frame this as the partners are in each other's care, not their own, each other's care. Therefore, Eli, I have to be an Eli whisperer. I have to learn the animal I'm with. I have to know how to handle you in the best way. I know how to manage your state of mind. I know how to bring you uh, back to recovery or to help you recover earlier uh, than you would on your own. And you help me do things I can't do very well on my own because we need another person to do this, right? This is where uh, this idea of co-regulation over self-regulation is seminal. It's a whole different orientation, a two-person think, a three-legged race like a potato sack race. I have to intuit you. I have to know how to move with you or we don't go anywhere. That's very different from other models where you do your thing, I do my thing, and that leads actually to conflict and unfairness and resentment. So this is a whole different ball game. If you're having a hard time feeling better, we look to the other partner, that would be me, my skill. What am I not doing to help you recover better? That's if you do not have a psychiatric illness. Right. So we got into this together and we're going to get out of it together, so to speak. Pack sessions... I believe can be longer than a standard 50-minute clinical hour. Tell us about that, and you're doing a great job of setting the stage for what this would look like, but tell us what a typical PAC session looks like. The first session for me is three hours, and the reason it's three hours is that I need to get a lot of data about the early childhood, and I need to get that at the top. I need to get 
uh, genogram, three generational genogram that I also color code. Uh, so I can look at, a, at the front of a sheet and see the couple, see their history. I have a graphic representation of who they are and what I'm dealing with. So I need to do that. And then I need to put them under little stressors to see how they operate as a couple. Because it's like going to a doctor's office. First you do an intake, you uh, get a history and physical, and then you put the patient, in this case the couple, on the exam table and see how they operate as a couple. So uh, that three hours is really important for knowing and helping them to know why they're there and what they're going to do about it and where they're going if they, if they go into treatment. So after that, it's two hours. And reason two hours is that with couples, we need to make sure that they end up right side up. Couple therapy is an iatrogenic process that causes trouble many times. We can cause problems by giving a couple a lot of hope uh, and then they'll crash and burn because uh, lo and behold, they're going to do the same stupid things when they go home and it's a higher place to fall from. So we have to be careful in how we craft and how we shape each session. Two hours, enough time to get them in and out of trouble and right side up before they end. And this is a safety issue, not only for the couple, but for the therapist, because the therapist needs time to relax, not operate based on pressure, but inspiration, right? I'm not operating because I, I have to do something. I only have so much time. I've got to come up with something brilliant. No, I have time to sit back, eat my popcorn, be an audience member to the couple, and sort out what I want to do or what I think is really going on, and then act if I'm so inspired. That is really important to good work. And also, the time gives me the space to find out who I'm dealing with, which is important, because what if I'm dealing with a disorganized, disoriented couple? I need to know that. What am I dealing with? I'm dealing with personality disorders. I need to know that. And so, the time is on our side. However, given COVID and telehealth, I'm not doing six-hour, five-hour, four-hour sessions anymore because that was something I could do in office because we could take lots of breaks and I'm moving them around to different positions and we're, you know, we're, we're doing lots of different staging. It's refreshed. It's easy for the time to just fly by. Not so on camera where your, your tushy is on the, the chair and it gets tiring and eyes get uh, you know, uh, blurry and dry from looking at a screen. So I don't do the very long sessions today because of COVID, but I still do two hours, three hours, and then I start to cut it down accordingly because a lot of what we do is really teaching, training, workshopping with the couple. If you are rushed and the clients pick up on that, uh, that adds to their cycle. So this idea of creating the space to let this unfold, to teach and to coach, to help this co-regulation, it makes complete sense why you would want extra time or more time than a standard psychotherapy 50 45 minute session to do that the other thing even our listeners can tell by listening to you you have a very soothing voice and your interpersonal style is probably well geared toward this how do you work with therapists as far as uh, learning the pack approach to calm down relax let these things unfold and you have to get to a place where you're able to be calm and differentiated before you can help your couples do that. So what does this self of therapist work look like in this model? That's a great question because 
I think what's lacking in our training and teaching in college is therapist self-regulation. By, by self-regulation, I mean the therapist's ability to stay within social engagement, within the, uh, you know, uh, uh, Dan Siegel's window of tolerance. And that is alert, but relaxed. Alert and relaxed, right? So how do you stay in that pocket when you're dealing with uh, projective identification, all this material that is coming at you from these two people, uh, you're dealing with a lot of uh, tumult and noise and sound in the room. How do you deal with that? Well, one simple answer is something that I would call outside meditation. It's a combination of a Japanese form of psychotherapy called Morita, which is basically keeping your eyes always scanning for details. My eyes are constantly going back and forth between faces. I'm looking at the person who is not talking, and then I'm glancing at the person who is talking. My eyes are going up and down to catch the feet. I'm looking for any cue, any tell, any body signal, somatic signal that tells me what is going on inside right now that I need to investigate or collect as data for future use perhaps strategically. So my eyes are constantly moving like a camera, a documentary camera that has to pick up both faces as uh, quickly as I can. I don't want to miss anything. While I'm doing that, I'm constantly scanning my body for new tensions that are arising and I'm constantly letting go. So I reset myself after I speak. I sit back in my chair. I relax. I go back to zero. I forget everything as if I'm back to baseline. Sit back, watch the show, see how my intervention worked or didn't work, and then I, I move again. If somebody looks at me, I reset because that causes tension in the body. If, I, if somebody says something to me, if they say a dangerous word or phrase to each other, I relax my body. When they raise their voice, I relax my body. So I'm constantly relaxing my body at, while I'm keeping consistent, continuous visual scanning, auditory scanning for every clue, everything they're doing. This allows me to stay alert and relaxed. If I only did one, I'd get sleepy. If I did the other, my blood pressure and heart rate would go up. We could do a whole show on what you're just talking about. Maybe we would because uh, we have a lot of supervisors, trainers, program faculty that listen to the show. And I think that process of training therapists to stay calm and attentive is so important it's so important. Uh, so important. You're, you're preaching to the choir, and I love hearing you, you say that, and I'd love to talk more about yeah. that. But. One, one of the things that we'll all, no matter how smart we get, no matter how much experience we have, the therapist is always going to be vulnerable to uh, countertransference acting out. And that's one of the things we try to work against, to act out a countertransference feelings, which is the same as what a couple does in the moment to feel better at the cost of doing the right thing. And so that takes a certain continuous awareness of one's own body. And, and relax, it's a blood pressure, heart rate issue. And as long as we can understand how that works, we can keep our seat for the most part. <laughs> yeah, so cool. So I have learned a ton. We are running out of time, but I do want you to talk about the PAC Institute because if you liked what you've heard, Stan has some great books aimed at therapists, aimed at couples, but talk about the PAC Institute. And if somebody wants to get more training in this approach or just learn more, what is, where is the easiest place to start? Go to the PACTinstitute.com. There you will find information, articles, uh, interviews, but also ways to 
sign up or look into our training, which is worldwide. We do it online now. And there you will find the curriculum also. This is a complex polytheoretical approach that takes a little while to understand, but once you do, it's a lot of fun. And if you're interested in couple retreats, Tracy, uh, my wife, my partner, and I do couple retreats throughout the year, throughout the world, and you can sign up for that. You can get a good idea of what we do on the front end with couples directly. And then read my articles. And We Do is uh, the latest book out. I'm working on another one that's coming out very shortly. And we just finished and published a baby bomb with a, a colleague of mine preparing a couple for their first child. Eli back with you, bringing to close another installment of the AAMFT podcast. Finishing off our two-part series on couple psychobiological functioning. I learned so much. Thank you, Stan Tatkin. The packed website is really packed full, pardon the pun, of information for therapists and for couples. That's thepackinstitute.com. There you will find out about Stan and his wife, Tracy, and the three levels of training they have for therapists, including the therapist directory, and there's a whole site for couples there as far as the couples retreat, various resources for couples. And Stan has written, as we mentioned in the interview, several really good books. We Do, Saying Yes to a Relationship of Depth, True Connection, and Enduring Love came out a couple of years ago. That is great for couples, especially couples. It's all about prevention, learning tools and techniques for preventing problems with they occur. And the one that I've really enjoyed that puts Stan on the map is Wired for Love, how understanding your partner's brain and attachment style can help you diffuse conflict and build a secure relationship. If you're not partnered up, he's also got a book for you, Wired for Dating, which is the neurobiology of dating. Whether we're talking about emerging topics like psychobiology of couple relationships or we're interviewing the movers and shakers in the field, the pioneers of couple and family therapy, the AAMFT podcast has it for you. Check it all of our installments out wherever you find your most popular podcast. I'm partial to Apple Podcast and Spotify. Check us out four seasons worth of material. Also check out coming up shortly on March 31st, the AAMFT 2022 Leadership Symposium, everything packed into one day, March 31st. I will be speaking around my greatest fails. It's all about leadership and who comes with leadership also comes failure. So if you've ever wanted to know about how you can fall forward, check out my workshop. I'll be talking at 3.30 in a breakout session, Eastern time. Everything you need to know about the 2022 Leadership Symposium is amft.org. Register today. You can also find out some great things about AMFT's Certificate of Leadership. A good choice for any MFT interested in a leadership position outside of the therapy room, you know, in their community or especially within AAMFT. You get live virtual trainings as part of the Leadership Symposium. You get online on-demand training via Tenio, a personalized assessment to determine your leadership and communication strengths. 
you're paired with a mentor in the MFT field to help you along. And you will create a leadership portfolio that'll help you advance your skills and move forward in your leadership career. Again, certificate of leadership, well worth looking into. Please drop me a line. You can email me at Eli at NorthstarCounselingCenter.com. You can visit me at www.elikaram.com. Elikaram.com. Follow us on Twitter. The AMFT is at, at the AMFT. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic, stay systemic, stay systemic.